0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We have two scripture readings this afternoon. First of all, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Then we go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. This afternoon we are dealing with Lord's Day 30 of the Hatterberg Catechism. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us, first, that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry who are to come to the table of the Lord. Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them, and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No. For then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. Loved congregation of Christ our Lord, what does it mean exactly to be reformed? We have that word in the name of our church, Langley Canadian Reformed Church. What does it actually mean? Well, I'd say that the simplest answer is that it means back to the Bible. Our churches, as you know, were born in the Great Reformation of the 1500s. In the 16th century, the Reformation was about getting back to what the Bible teaches One of the central points of the Reformation was to get back to what the Bible teaches about worship. One thing that nobody would argue about then or now is that the Lord's Supper is part of our worship. But how people think about that Lord's Supper and how people do it, well, that's another matter. That's always been a serious bone of contention. The Reformers argued that we have to get back to what the Bible teaches about this sacrament. And there were two fronts that they had to deal with. On the one front, you had the Roman Catholics with the Mass. On the other front, there were those who thought that just about anybody could and anybody should be admitted to the Lord's Supper. There should be no restrictions. Throw it wide open for anybody who wants to come. Lord's Day 30 addresses both of those fronts. And so I preach to you God's word summarized in the Catechism with this theme. We confess and celebrate the Lord's Supper according to the command of Christ and his apostles. We'll see that this results in a great difference, first of all, between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. And then second, between worthy and unworthy partakers. I'd like to share, first of all, a quote with you. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, She commemorates Christ's Passover, and it is made present. The sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever-present. As often as the sacrifice of the cross, by which Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. That quote comes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Of course, we have the Heidelberg Catechism. The Roman Catholic Church also has its catechism. The Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can find it in the religion section of any bookstore. And in that quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we find it saying that there is no forgiveness of sins unless Christ is still offered in the Mass. Every time there is a Mass, the priest is making another sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says there, the work of our redemption is carried out is carried out. That's present tense. We confess that this is a denial of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, accomplished on the cross once for all. Even though the Roman Catholics say that the Mass is one and the same with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, there is still the fact that it is repeated over and over again. They can't get away from having to repeat it over and over again. Further, it's a sacrifice. There's the language of sacrifice in the the Roman Catholic Catechism. And that's why the one who offers it has to be a priest. A priest, by definition, is someone who makes a sacrifice. And the sacrifice of the Mass is offered not only for the living, but also for the dead. The forgiveness of sins. The Catechism of the Catholic Church again. Here's another quote The Eucharistic sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ, but are not yet wholly purified. So they're still they still have to deal with their sin, so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. So the faithful departed have not yet entered into the light and peace of Christ, and that's why masses have to continue to be offered. And what is the proof for this doctrine? Throughout the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they have footnotes, just like we have footnotes in our catechism, footnotes to to prove what they're trying to say. And in this particular instance, the proof is a decree of the Council of Trent from back in the 16th century, and quotes from two saints, but no scripture. In the end, all of this is a tragic, very sad, denial of the one sacrifice of Christ. We read Hebrews 10, and as you listen to Hebrews 10, it's it's almost as if the author of Hebrews was familiar with the context of Roman Catholicism. He compares priests who repeatedly offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Compares that with our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who made the one sacrifice and then sat down at the right hand of God. His having sat down Don't take that for granted. His having sat down means that his sacrificial work was completely done. Finished. Never to be repeated in any way. And then in verse 14 of Hebrews 10, it says that by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Notice the language used there. He has made perfect. What use would you have for a mass for those who are who are dead, if they have been made perfect by Christ. It's finished. Nothing about the work of our redemption in Hebrews 10 being carried out into the present. Rather, it's all been done in the past. Franco Maggiotto was a, a friend of mine from Italy. Franco Maggiotto had been a Roman Catholic priest. For many years. In fact, he had been a, a high-ranking official in the Vatican. He, he knew the Roman Catholic Church. He knew Roman Catholic doctrine. One day, Franco Maggiotto was saying Mass in his church, and he was converted during Mass. He was converted while reading Hebrews 10. As he read Hebrews 10 to his Roman Catholic congregation, suddenly, There was light and he said you can all go home now we don't need to go any further enough of this it's all been finished I'm fired and Franco once gave a a good explanation to me of why the Roman Catholic idea of the mass is so wrong he compared it to going to a restaurant with a group of friends You sit down with your friends and you enjoy a good meal together. At the end of the meal, the waiter brings the bill. And you, being the good friend that you are, you pay for the meal for all your friends. But then later, as as they're going out, the waiter stops them and tries to get each one to pay for his meal. All over again, even though you had paid it for them, for each one of them. That's what's happening in the Mass. Jesus Christ paid once for all on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. And the Mass says, no. Sin has to be paid for again, and not just once, but over and over, and not just while you're alive, but also after you're dead. And in this way, it's definitely a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of our Lord Jesus. But it's more than that. We also confess it to be an accursed idolatry. Last week we looked at Lord's Day 29 and we briefly considered the concept of transubstantiation. That's the idea that the bread and the wine are in some way turned into the real body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Well, listen again to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the reason I'm quoting the Catechism of the Catholic Church is so that you get it straight from the Roman Catholic Church. It's not, so I won't misrepresent them. In in the liturgy of the Mass, they say, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other things, genuflecting. Genuflecting means bowing, or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, Cult is another word for worship. Not only during Mass, but also outside of it. Reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful, and carrying them in procession. And as, as I mentioned before, sometimes the catechism of the Catholic Church will have a, a Bible text to support some teaching, but in this instance, there is no Bible text. Instead, there's a reference to a papal encyclical or a teaching letter of Pope Paul VI. The point I'm trying to make is that what the Heidelberg Catechism says here about the Roman Catholic doctrine, it remains true. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. They still teach that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and that he is there to be worshipped. The problem is that this goes directly against the second commandment. This is idolatry. We confess in Lord's Day 35 from the Scriptures that we may not use images or anything like them in order to serve God through them. Now, why is it important to bring this to your attention? Why spend time on this? Well you know, this isn't about dumping on the Roman Catholics just because we can. It's about making it clear that there is truth and there is error and we should know the difference between the two. But even more importantly, most importantly, it should make us aware of the fact that many, if not most, of our Roman Catholic friends are still lost. They're still in darkness no less than your Sikh or Muslim or Hindu friends. Many of them are placing their hope in teachings that won't save them from the wrath to come. Well, there may be some exceptions, and I'm I'm glad for that. While there may be some exceptions, consistent, devout Roman Catholics are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their welfare now and in eternity. And if you don't believe me, Ask a devout Roman Catholic sometime about the prayers on the rosary and what every tenth prayer says. Realizing all of this, our heart should break for them. Really. We should pray for them. And we should look for opportunities to share the biblical good news of the gospel of grace with them. Well, that brings us to the positive point of how rich we are with the Lord's Supper. When we confess and celebrate the Lord's Supper according to the command of Christ and his apostles, we rejoice in the completed work of Christ. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, we hear that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. There don't have to be any doubts Or questions. You can have full assurance knowing that all our sins are washed away. We can know for sure that when our time comes. When our heart beats one last time. When we take our last breath. Immediately afterwards we will be received straight into glory with the Lord. There will be no purgatory. No hellish waiting room. Where we still have to get cleansed for our sins. Waiting waiting for masses to be offered for us so we can make the final part of our journey. Now, the Lord's Supper testifies to us that it's all been done for us in what Christ did. All done. This is the gospel of grace. The Lord's Supper also tells us that we are grafted into Christ That's another way of speaking of our union with Christ. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that we are in Christ, that we are His body. And we're also reminded that He is in heaven and that He's there for our benefit until He comes back. And so when we worship Him, we worship the ascended Christ who is sitting at the right hand of His Father. The Lord's Supper is rich because it tells us of a Savior who has completed His work for us. Such a Savior deserves our worship and adoration. Deserves our adoration and our worship in the manner that Scripture commands such worship. What that means is that we don't add and we don't take away from what the Bible says. That means that, like the form for the Lord's Supper says, we lift our hearts on high in heaven where Christ, our advocate, is at the right hand of His heavenly Father. The bread and the wine are not the body and blood of Christ, so we don't cling to these outward symbols. Instead, our worship is directed upwards to Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let's consider in our second point how following the command of Christ and his apostles makes for a difference in who partakes of the sacrament. As I mentioned, during the time of the Reformation, there was pressure. Already back then, to admit just about anybody to the Lord's Supper. After all, before the Reformation took place, just about any good white non-Jewish European could take part in communion in the Roman Catholic Church. But after the Reformation, things changed. There were some who joined the Reformed churches who weren't very happy about a stricter celebration of the sacrament. One of those people was a man by the name of Philibert Bertelier. Now, some of you may have heard of him before. Some of you may have heard the story about him before. But I do think it's worth repeating. Philibert Bertelier lived in 16th century Geneva during the time that John Calvin was doing his pastoral work there. Bertelier was known as a free thinker one who would go outside the bounds of accepted Christian faith and practice. He was an outspoken lawyer and a well-known alcoholic. Bertelier had been excommunicated because of his beliefs and because of his lifestyle. For instance, one of the things he was notorious for was getting drunk and then chasing pastors around the city. At that time in Geneva, the city council was responsible for oversight and discipline in the church. Calvin and the other Genevan pastors were not happy with that arrangement. They wanted it change. They strongly believed that oversight and discipline belonged to the consistory, to the elders of the church. And through some politicking and lobbying, right, it's all about who you know, Bertelier was able to get the city council to admit him again to the Lord's Supper, even though he had not shown any signs of repentance. What happened next was remarkable. The next Sunday, after he had been admitted, Calvin was administering the Lord's Supper in St. Peter's Church in Geneva. And at the end of the sermon, Calvin, Calvin knew that there was trouble brewing. At the end of the sermon, before that celebration of the sacrament, Calvin stated, I will die sooner than have this hand stretch forth the sacred things of the Lord to those who have been judged despisers. Right after Calvin said that, a crowd of Bertellier's supporters rushed to the front of the church. And Calvin came down from the pulpit. And he stood before the table. And one of Bertellier's supporters took out his sword. Right, A lot of men carried swords with him. They even took him to church in those days. Took out his sword and waved it in Calvin's face. And cried, administer communion to us or you will die. Calvin told them that they might cut off his arms, shed his blood, and take his life, but they would never force him to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of his Lord. As you can well imagine, the congregation was in shock. And a long silence followed this dramatic moment. And one of Bertellier's friends quietly advised him not to approach the table. And he didn't. They left. The Lord's Supper was celebrated in peace. And in the afternoon service, this all happened in the morning, in the afternoon service, Calvin preached a farewell sermon because he thought for sure that he'd been kicked out of Geneva once again. But it didn't happen. Calvin went on to serve in Geneva for another ten years or so. That's a great story out of church history, And it illustrates the background to what our catechism is saying in the last two questions and answers of Lord's Day 30. You see, there was a struggle in the time of the Reformation about who could come to the Lord's Supper. Some wanted a very open table, if not totally wide open. And others wanted it to be closely supervised by the consistory. How do we resolve this issue? Well, it can only be resolved by going back to the Bible. Again, the essence of being reformed, right? And that's where the catechism brings us. The first question puts it in the positive. Who can come to the table of the Lord? In other words, what do worthy partakers of the body and blood of the Lord look like? And the answer is based on the teachings of 1 Corinthians 11. And it focuses on what goes on in the hearts of believers. The catechism recognizes the reality that we all sin. Sometimes, as we confess in the fifth chapter of the Canons of Dort, sometimes we even commit serious sins. But believers are noted for what they do about sin. They repent from their sins. That means they have a change of mind and they turn back to God. They're not happy with themselves because of what they've done. They're not comfortable with it. And yet, they don't get stuck on that. Worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper, they hold on to Jesus Christ. They hold on to Him, to His suffering and to His death. They trust that the suffering and death of Christ are enough to forgive all their sins. Cover whatever weaknesses are still in them. Even weaknesses that they may not even recognize. Sins that they don't even know about. And these worthy partakers, they not only flee to Jesus Christ in faith, they also want to see their faith grow stronger. They want to make progress in their relationship with the Lord. They want to move forward in holiness. In other words, worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper are simply true believers in Christ. They are not worthy in themselves. They have been made worthy because of Christ. They are accepted at the Lord's Supper because they are in Christ. You know, whenever we read the form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we always come to the, that list of sins, right? Sometimes called the catalog of sins. And there's potential for misunderstanding there if we're not listening carefully. First of all, the form speaks about those who know themselves to be guilty of the following offensive of sins. And then it goes on to list them. Listen, if if you've done those sins and you have repented, you've asked the Lord to forgive you, then you are no longer guilty. Your guilt has been washed away by the blood of Christ. And also after the catalog gets read off, there is a line which reads, while they persist in their sins, they shall not take of this food. The words persist in sin are the key to understanding what makes the difference between a worthy and an unworthy partaker. If we go on living in sin, never repenting, never turning, not giving a rip about Christ or about His Word, the Lord's Supper will only lead to judgment for us. Worthy partakers are simply Repentant believers. And here the words of John Calvin are especially worth noting. Calvin said, if we stay away from the Lord's Supper because we say that our faith is still weak and our life imperfect, we would resemble someone who refuses to take medication because he is sick. Worthy partakers are not perfect partakers. Not perfect in themselves. They come because they know they're not anywhere near perfect. And because they know that they need Christ. They need to have their faith in Him strengthened. So those are worthy partakers. Now, on the other side, unworthy partakers are simply the opposite, right? Those who show by what they say and by the way they live, that they're unbelieving and ungodly, they have no place at the Lord's Supper. Not much is clear from what we read in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says that there are those who eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. They will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, unworthy partakers are bringing great danger to themselves. They're slapping the Son of God in the face. The words of Hebrews 10, 29-31 are relevant here. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews 10, 29 to 31. And so it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the individual person to be an unworthy partaker. Our catechism captures that when it says that hypocrites and those who do not repent, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. There's no way you can get around that. Judgment is negative. This is bad. Dangerous. But it's also dangerous not only for the individual person who's an unworthy partaker. The danger spreads to the entire congregation. The Catechism says that the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. And again, we see a vivid example of this in 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 30, the Spirit says that the Corinthians were profaning the Lord's Supper. And that was the reason why many among them were weak and sick and why a number of people had even died. It wasn't necessarily that the ones who were weak and sick or the ones who had died had had sinned in this way, that they were themselves unworthy partakers of the Lord's Supper. The sacrament had been profaned by certain individuals and the rest of the congregation suffered for it. And do we think that this could not happen today? Why not? The Lord worked covenantally with his people in Corinth. The Lord continues to work covenantally with his people today. Today, he will still chastise, he will still discipline his people if he needs to. That's never pleasant, and we would rather avoid it just as a a child would rather avoid the discipline of his parents. This is a good reason why this church follows the command of Christ in keeping the Lord's Supper under the supervision of the elders. When Christ instituted the sacrament, he instituted it for believers. Yes. Christ also led his church to appoint office bearers who would be overseers or elders. These men would be the ones to ensure that Christ's commands are followed in the church. And so for the sake of the congregation, for the welfare of the congregation, but more importantly because we value what Christ has done for us, the office bearers, the elders, don't allow just anybody to partake in the Lord's Supper. Whether or not somebody will... Join us at a Lord's Supper celebration is not just something for the individual to decide. It's a decision that has an impact on all of us, on the whole congregation. And that's why the elders need to be involved. And there are different ways that people are admitted to the Lord's Supper in our congregation. The normal way is that you are examined by the elders, you make public profession of faith, and are then admitted you can also come to our congregation, as many of you have done, with an attestation from a sister congregation. An attestation is normally a piece of paper from the consistory from which you came, which states that you are a member in good standing and that you are not under discipline. By these means, the holiness of the sacrament is protected. And so is the congregation. The Lord's Supper has been given to the church by our Lord Jesus. He gave it because he knows that we are weak. He knows that we need something beyond the word to confirm and strengthen us in our faith. And so out of his compassion for us, he gives us this visible preaching of the gospel. These physical signs and seals that, through which we can taste and see that the Lord is good. These visible signs and seals which point us to himself. And that's what it's all about, more and more lifting up our hearts to Christ. That's what's at stake for our striving for a biblical celebration of the sacrament. We don't want to find out that we have missed out on Christ. Because without him, we are lost. But with him, we are rich, eternally blessed as heirs of the kingdom of God with him. We look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when we will begin that celebration of God's love, a celebration that will last forever. Let's now pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross once for all. We praise you for the assurance that we are grafted into Christ, that we have union with him. Father, we are so richly blessed. And Father, we also bring before you our Roman Catholic friends who may not know these rich blessings that we have. We pray that you would bring them to see the riches of the gospel of grace and to embrace those riches. Please work with your word and spirit in them And please also use us wherever you can to that end. We pray that you would help us to maintain discipline in our congregation. Also so that the holiness of the Lord's Supper would be preserved. We pray that we would never have your wrath kindled against us. Lord, have mercy upon us today and always. We pray in the name of Christ, our only Savior.